Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the summer of 1774, trouble stirred on the American frontier as Great Britain was faced with yet another terrible Indian uprising. Following the signing of the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in the year 1768, the Iroquois effectively gave American settlers free reign over the Ohio River Valley. Although the document was officially sanctioned by the Six Nations and Imperial Administration, the Shawnees who actually lived in the region saw any European encroachment as an act of war. In one of the great power plays in history, Lord Dunmore, the governor of Virginia, used these circumstances to manufacture a war in which he stood to profit greatly. Although labeled Lord Dunmore's War in the history books, few understand this terrible and bloody Indian conflict and often miss its ties to the larger American Revolution. On this episode, we discuss Lord Dunmore's War, 1774. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. We've been discussing in this season the American Revolution, and we've been taking very special care to focus more early on on the origins than on the war itself. Now, we'll give credit where credit is due. We'll spend a great deal of time on the actual war, the actual combat, and the campaigns they involve. But I think it's really important for us to understand at the beginning the ideological foundations of this war, because they are many and they are complicated. One of the things we like to do, and I've, I've said this a great deal this season, is make this time period simple. Make it easy. It's us versus them. It's good versus bad. It's black versus white. It's A versus B, whatever you want to say. But already we've seen in this season of wartime, that it's actually much more layered than that. It's much more stratified than that. And of course, there are many different political powers and ideologies uh, and persuasions all sort of being mixed in that will lead to this uh, almost unthinkable revolt of the American colonies. We've discussed Indian violence on the frontier in previous episodes of Wartime. And we've discussed taxation, and we've seen that in every instance, there were major factors that drove the events, and there was major political backlash as a result. When you control the politics, you control the narrative. That's as true today uh, as ever. And when you control the narrative, you can draw individuals into one way or another. On today's episode, I'd like to return a bit to the frontier. Not entirely, 
uh, but for a great deal, and discuss one of the most puzzling and difficult events in American history, an event we call Lord Dunmore's War. Many have said that Lord Dunmore's War, if you've ever heard of that, you will today, is considered by many to be the first battle of the American Revolution, or the first manifestation of the American Revolution. That, in my interpretation, it isn't. But it is a very critical step in the process of unifying frontier settlements and coastal cities, each with their own unique reason to want separation from the British Empire, uh, but each directing their fears and anxiety toward the same individuals. So let's begin. Even though most of the story takes place in the time, what is Virginia, uh, today the states of Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky, this story really begins, in of all places, upstate New York. Now, when we talk about upstate New York, we're specifically going to talk about the Mohawk River Valley. The Mohawk River Valley bisects the state of New York, effectively, east and west, uh, and it cuts the uh, state right down the middle. And the Mohawk River Valley, which we'll focus an entire episode on in the future when we get to the actual war itself, is going to be a major center of contention, war, and bloodshed uh, for many, many, many years. Now, one of the vital aspects of the Mohawk River Valley is that the British have a fort in the heart of the Iroquois world. Remember, upstate New York was the home of the mighty Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois Confederacy and the British Empire have long-standing ties of alliance to one another. And when the British Empire wants to broker a deal with the Indian peoples, regardless of the, num the number of different tribes and, and nations that exist, they'll often go to the Iroquois first. They feel that they'll use, as all empires do, the pre-existing channels of control that the Iroquois possess to insert their own influence. They'll meet in 1768 at a fortification uh, that is today in a place called Rome, New York. Uh, and that fortification is known as Fort Stanwix. It's named after the British general John Stanwix. He designed the fort. He built the fort a few years earlier. He also was the man who uh, oversaw construction initially of Fort Pitt. Long story short, he knows exactly what he's doing. But at Fort Stanwix in 1768, the British will meet to discuss one of the biggest points of contention between the Indian world and the expanding British North America seen yet. And of course, the issue, as always, is land. Who controls what and who has the rights to what? Now, normally, when we do talk about this time period, if in the popular sense we even recognize that it exists, we often have this idea that the British simply roll into Indian territory and take what they want to be their own. I suppose with a broad brushstroke, that's acceptable. But we're not going to use broad strokes on this podcast. The reason we're here is to really get our hands dirty, to tear this apart, and understand the small mechanisms of power as they occur. Fort Stanwix is going to be our attempt at doing that. Because the British and the Iroquois have such a strong relationship, and such a historic relationship, the British believe that any negotiation for land in and around the Iroquois world can be handled with them. When they come together in 1768 at Fort Stanwix, land is the issue of the day. 
what the British want in particular uh, is a virtual guarantee, a virtual promise that British settlers can expand into the Ohio country and not be attacked by the people who live there, specifically the land to the south of the Ohio River. Now, if you're familiar with this, this is basically modern West Virginia and Kentucky. Now, the people who live there are the Shawnee, and they are the subjects, effectively, of the Iroquois, and they don't get along. And in their opinion, that land, the land in discussion, belongs to them. The Iroquois in upstate New York have no right to give that land away. Well, of course, based on precedent, the Iroquois will negotiate with the British and give them that land. And what they develop in 1768 is known as the Treaty of Fort Stanwix. In my latest book, Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America, I spend an entire chapter on the Treaty of Fort Stanwix because it's so important to understand what it said and how it would lead to much more tumultuous events leading to the American Revolution. In the grander scheme of the narrative of the revolution, we often lose sight of this. In fact, most of you probably have never heard of it. Viewed from the Indian worldview, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix is as important as any European-style document ever signed. So what did the treaty do? Well, again, the treaty gave the British open settlement of the land south of the Ohio River, modern West Virginia and modern Kentucky. But the issue is, even though the British felt very confident that their settlers could live there and not be attacked, the land was not the Iroquois to give away. Now, again, that's a, a, an alternate perspective. The Iroquois believed it was, the British believed it was, but the people who lived there had no such idea. That land was theirs. They were the Shawnee, and they weren't particularly fond of the Iroquois. If you'll recall, the Shawnee were not allies of the Iroquois. They were subjects of the Iroquois, effectively as we understand it, but they sided with the French in the Seven Years' War. For them, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War in North America, was a rebellion against the Iroquois. So they, there is no uh, love lost, we can say, between these two parties. So, of course, when the Treaty of Fort Stanwix is signed, a lot of it is signed because of the terrible nature of Pontiac's rebellion. The British don't want that to happen again. They want guarantees. Their settlers can move there safely. And they do pay the Iroquois for the land. There's a very real disconnect between the people who signed the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768 in upstate New York and the situation on the ground uh, south of the Ohio River again, modern West Virginia and Kentucky, uh, by the Shawnee who would live there. This is a recipe for disaster. Because from the British mindset, they have signed peace with the people uh, of that area. From the mindset of the people who live there, though, there is nothing on hand but war. Now, this is going to play out in an interesting way. And we're actually going to fast forward beyond all of the taxes and duties that we've talked about to the year 1773. In 1773, we really begin to see settlement deep into this region occur for the first time. Remember, uh, it may be easy to move east to west across the Appalachian Mountains in America today, but in the colonial world of British North America, the Appalachian Mountain chain, the Allegheny Mountains specifically, uh, were largely impassable for most people. But when they begin to open up, 
we finally see the problems and what I would describe uh, in my book as the discontents of the Treaty of Fort Stanwix emerge. This story begins in 1773, September, early fall, and it involves a figure I bet you all recognize. His name is Daniel Boone. Now, whenever most people hear Daniel Boone, they think about the stereotypical sort of Disney World version of Daniel Boone. Coon skin cap, hunting rifle, that kind of thing. But Daniel Boone was a very real man with very real experiences. Uh, he was present at the Battle of Braddock's defeat in 1755, deep in the heart of the frontier. Uh, he is as rugged a frontiersman and ambitious a, a an expansionist colonist uh, that there is in the time in 1773. Well, in September, uh, Daniel Boone will take about 50 Virginians with him, and he'll move into the heart of this area uh, that the Indians will know uh, will call Kentucky. And of course, that's modern Kentucky, all considered to be part of Virginia, effectively, uh, nominally at the time. Well, in October, as he's moving through the area, uh, his oldest son, James Boone, uh, will venture out with a few uh, friends to forage ahead of the party. And when they're discovered by a group of Shawnee and Delaware, some Cherokee, but specifically the Shawnee, they're taken captive and they are murdered in brutal, brutal fashion. Uh, the documents themselves say that they were, quote, uh, they were murdered uh, to, quote, send a message of opposition to settlement. Uh, by the time Daniel Boone discovered his son, his body was badly mutilated, badly massacred. Uh, even a, a, a relative of Patrick Henry, we'll talk about him later too, uh, was killed in this event. So this is a major event in places like Philadelphia, in places like Baltimore. This was big news. Many will say the killing of James Boone uh, and his party really is the beginning of a new hostility between the Ohio Indians, specifically the Shawnee, uh, and the expansion of British settlement. Again, remember, we know why people go to war in the coastal cities. Taxes, taxes, taxes. On the frontier, it's a very different story. It always involves the native peoples, and it most specifically involves Britain's inability to protect their own settlers. Now, whenever Boone's family is killed, we see uh, the beginnings, the churnings of a rebellion in the Shawnee world. And again, their enemies are not their fellow native peoples, not the Delaware, not the Cherokee, not the Mingo, but their enemies are these expanding settlers. Now, from the British viewpoint, remember, they are fully within their rights to move into this territory. They signed a treaty making it official. I mean, it doesn't get any more official in the Western world than that. Think about the way we sign contracts today, a signature is infallible. A handshake, you can argue in court, but a signature is a done deal. We haven't really come that far. But also remember the Shawnee themselves had nothing to do with that deal, and they will violently defend their homeland, if necessary. Now what occurs between 1768 and 1773 is that settlement does occur in and around the Ohio River Valley. And many small communities are established, and I use that word very loosely. Uh, they're basically encampments uh, that take on names and become sort of hubs of civilization in a very rugged, very dangerous place. One of the most notable is a place called 
Zanesburg. Now, what is Zanesburg? Zanesburg is basically the site of Wheeling, West Virginia. If you're not familiar with the geography, the Ohio River is formed where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers meet, uh, modern Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It becomes the southern border of Ohio, the northern border of West Virginia, as well as the northern border of Kentucky, until that reaches the Mississippi River. Well, there are very few hubs of, of settlement in this area. Zanesburg is one of them. And what occurs in 1774 is a very, again, uh, abrupt but serious outburst of violence. Uh, a frontiersman, a former military man named Michael Cressup, uh, will lead an expedition uh, against the Shawnee peoples. Now, again, he's not a member of any military group. He's what we would consider to be militia, irregulars. Uh, he'll lead a party near a place called Pipe Creek on the Ohio River. Uh, there will be exchange of gunfire between the Shawnee and the British settlers. And this will be, in the minds of many, as the official beginning of hostility or war between the Shawnee and the colonists who live there. So we have a few questions to ask. Number one, if the Shawnee believe that land is theirs, who claims the Ohio River? Uh, well, we say the British very generally, but the more specific answer uh, is the colony of Virginia. Virginia was the wealthiest colony in the New World, bar none. Uh, the wealthiest people lived there. They could expand the most. They really controlled the fate of British North America in a number of ways. The same is true when we get to the origins of the revolution itself. But most of these settlers would have probably uh, claimed to be Virginians. Now today, Pittsburgh, uh, the beginnings of the Ohio River and the, the home of Fort Pitt at the time, very important, is Pennsylvania. Uh, but at the time, there was really a big divide in and around Fort Pitt itself. Some Pennsylvanians claimed it as theirs. Some uh, settlers were Virginians, and they claimed it as theirs. Uh, this will all lead to some pretty nasty confusion and introduce us to a character that uh, I think is very compelling and very fascinating. Uh, and that is the governor of Virginia. The governor of Virginia at this time uh, is a very charismatic, very unusual man named John Murray. Uh, he's more notably known as Lord Dunmore. John Murray is the fourth Earl of Dunmore. He's literally landed gentry uh, in, in, in Britain. And like most landed gentry, he becomes a colonial governor. Now, he was originally the colonial governor of New York. He has no love for North America. He's, he's Scottish, and he's Scottish to the core. Uh, he believes he's better than most of the American settlements, as most people of the British Isle did. Uh, and he kind of governed with that disdain. He's very wealthy. He's very powerful. He considers himself to be a man on the move. Well, John Murray, uh, Lord Dunmore, when he becomes governor uh, of Virginia, will really begin to assert himself in the Ohio country. Again, the Ohio country today is Pennsylvania, but it was very much up for grabs at the time. What John Murray Lord Dunmore does as governor of Virginia is moves into uh, the Ohio country and just takes full command of it. The Pennsylvania legislature, the colonial legislature, wasn't making many moves to assert themselves. So his basic idea was, I'll take the initiative, I'll do what I need to do until someone decides they can stop me. He takes over Pittsburgh. He renames Fort Pitt, Fort Dunmore, after himself. And he organizes, uh, in and around the area of the Ohio River, into three new counties. 
uh, that are part of Virginia. So he's literally asserting himself there. The Pennsylvania legislature is not happy about it, but they are literally in no position to stop it. So this gives you an idea of who John Murray is. He plays by his own rules. Uh, he looks for opportunities to expand his wealth and expand his power in any way possible. And when you think about the area in and around the Ohio River, I want you to think dollar signs. The Ohio River is a super highway to the Mississippi. In fact, it's the easiest and only way to get to that river. So everyone in the British world knows about the value of the Ohio River. Uh, it is the great gateway to the West. And if you can control it, as the governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, wishes to do, you can uh, make toll booths, so to speak. You can uh, raise levies. You can make a lot of money off of it. And you can reap all of the natural resources around it. So already what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that the governor of Virginia has some significant stock and investment, much of it his own money, mind you, in and around the Ohio River itself. When the Shawnee begin to rise up in rebellion, when they begin to fight Michael Cressup, uh, when they kill Daniel Boone's son, from Dunmore's perspective, this is all done on land that should be his uh, and land that should be British. Remember, if someone settles there, if they make money there, they've got to pay taxes. And those taxes are largely going to go into his pockets. Uh, we call this conflict that's about to begin Lord Dunmore's War for a few different reasons. Uh, but just set aside his name for a while. He is a major player, and it's why a war like this is very confusing uh, and I think very, very compelling. This will lead us all to the year 1774. In 1774, visualize the Ohio River uh, as the, the great divide between the British world on the frontier and the Indian world. You can literally stand on the Ohio River. Uh, the northern bank is all British settlement, and the southern bank uh, is all Shawnee settlement. If you cross the river, you are basically breaking uh, a truce, or going into it understanding that there can be seriously violent repercussions on hand. Now, as you can imagine, imperial authority is at a, is at a relative low in these areas. The further you move west, the further you move toward the frontier, the less the hand of the law, that is law and order, really takes hold. Especially around this border region, the Ohio River. You have a lot of people acting in a way that is not necessarily conducive to a policy the British Empire would like. Well, if you can picture this situation, you can understand the events of April of 1774. On one side of the Ohio River, in what is today West Virginia, uh, you have a camp uh, of British settlers. On the other side, Immediately across the river, you have a camp of Mingo uh, and Shawnee families. Now again, crossing that river for either side is a very dangerous prospect. And when you mix in the notion of uh, alcohol, uh, that becomes a very potent and very dangerous situation. One of the white settlers, a man named Daniel Greathouse, uh, will again be drinking, I'm sure, whiskey with several of his, of his friends. Again, these are rugged frontiersmen far out of the reach of imperial control, and they'll ask, uh, through invitation, the native peoples across the river to cross to join them. They want to drink with them, they want to hunt with them, they want to play games with them, whatever. This is all part of the deal. It's nighttime. It's a starry night. It's a very uncertain situation, to say the least. 
Well, when the native peoples cross the river, uh, very quickly uh, they realize they've fallen into an ambush. Daniel Greathouse and his men will murder the native peoples involved. This happens where the Yellow Creek uh, meets the Ohio River. We call this the Yellow Creek Massacre. Uh, one of the people murdered, one of the native peoples murdered by Daniel Greathouse and his men, uh, was a Mingo chief named Logan. Logan was one of the most respected chiefs in the region, and he was a peace chief. Uh, he was a peace chief from 1768, the signing of the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, all the way through the violence that's already been occurring. When he returned to his camp and saw his entire family murdered, uh, this pushed the Mingo Logan over the edge. He began to realize war is now inevitable, and possibly his own stance of pacifism, uh, or at least diplomacy, cost him the lives of his family. The Yellow Creek Massacre. There's a marker there. Uh, it happened just outside of what is today Steubenville, Ohio. You might have heard of that. Steubenville, Ohio. Um, but there it was. The Yellow Creek Massacre. Uh, several frontiersmen murdered under false pretenses. Uh, several innocent women and men uh, of the Shawnee and Mingo world. Now, the Yellow Creek Massacre might seem like a one-off. It might seem like the kind of thing that happens in a contentious area, just sort of like when Michael Cressop, outside of Zanesburg, right, Wheeling, uh, chased those Shawnee warriors down the river and fired on them. But all of this, even though these individual events are all fairly minor in terms of their length of time, all of these things are building. They're all brewing, and they're all pushing the frontier into an age of complete and utter chaos. You're going to see war begin to emerge, and for many of the people living there, war is already a way of life. Uh, but those at Fort Pitt, uh, that's significantly further away from it, but in an area that would be its launch point, realize that a full-scale war against the Shawnee might be on hand for the British Empire. Now, let's go back to Lord Dunmore. Let's go back to the capital of Virginia. Whenever John Murray, Lord Dunmore, looks at the situation on the frontier, he looks at it as a very terrible thing. He sees that dozens and dozens and dozens of British settlers have died. And they've died on his watch. Most of them, Virginians. He's seen that dozens of native peoples have died. Not that he cares much for them. But for him, this is a an opportunity of the highest order. Because remember, he really wants to take over that land. He wants to control it for himself. He wants to make that money. He wants to reap the benefits. Now, for him, when he looks at the Ohio country, specifically, again, uh, the area in and around the Ohio River, West Virginia, Kentucky, what he sees is uh, almost untapped sources of wealth that would go directly and into the few of his investors into their pockets. But the biggest thing holding him back has always been the Shawnee people who live there. Now, keep in mind, Dunmore is an imperialist. He believes in the power of the empire. He believes the British Empire meant to take over the world. He really does. And when he sees marginal peoples like the Shawnee in North America uh, or like any other number of uh, native marginalized groups around the world that the British are trying to take over, he doesn't care much for them. They're a nuisance. They're in the way. If only he could be rid of them, he feels. All of that land, all of those riches could be his. Now, after the Yellow Creek Massacre, he believes an opportunity has arisen. And the opportunity is to do what he's always wanted to do. Get rid of the problem. 
eliminate the Shawnee, and the benefit of the land is yours. Now, when we talk about Dunmore's response, we always kind of uh, present it in a nefarious way, and rightfully so. But when he looks very closely at the situation, he looks at his options. He sees that, technically, the Empire would be on his side. Remember, the Treaty of Fort Stanwyck said that land was British. The Shawnee didn't agree with it. They had nothing to do with it. After all, they're the ones who live there. But in a technical sense, he's in the, he's in the right. At least he thinks so. But he also sees that most of the people of the frontier are demanding, just as they were 10 years earlier during Pontiac's rebellion, uh, that they be protected. Give us support. Give us help. And, of course, Dunmore saw the obvious response if he would send the militia of Virginia, the colonial militia, to march into that area and wipe out the Shawnee. He, of course, would benefit immensely and profit tremendously uh, from the aftermath. So for Lord Dunmore, for John Murray, it seemed to be a no-brainer. Send in troops, eliminate the Shawnee, you win points with the colonists, but much more importantly, you get filthy, filthy rich. We're going to call the resulting conflict Lord Dunmore's War for that reason. The overwhelming majority of Americans have never heard of Lord Dunmore's War. The overwhelming majority of colonialists, those who study the empire and the inner workings of colonial America, have heard of it, but probably can't succinctly tell you what it was all about. This is the beauty of having a podcast like this, because I can. So let's talk about it. Dunmore's War is really not much of a war at all, uh, but it would be what I would describe as a punitive exercise against the Shawnee, that is, a punishment. They're going to be unruly, he's going to make them pay for it. He's got a tremendous amount of firepower. As the colony of Virginia, he's very wealthy, and he's got a lot of resources at his disposal. Taking out the Shawnee in his mind won't be much of a problem at all. Again, this is 1774. This is a year before the events of Lexington and Concord. Now, Dunmore's plan is very basic. He's going to send his army, uh, the Virginia militia, in two prongs. And they're going to meet at a location along the Ohio River. Now, the location he wants this force to meet is the area where the Kanawha River, or the Kanawha River, depending on what part of West Virginia you're located in, I found that out the hard way, and the Ohio River is a notable place. It's very empty. Uh, but settlers have looked at it as a very beautiful place for a long time. Today, we call this location Point Pleasant, West Virginia. If you are familiar with the Mothman prophecies, this is the same place. Uh, keep in mind, the event we're about to talk about is astronomically more important because it actually happened. At any rate, I'm a historian. Uh, I'm not uh, really in a position to talk about those kind of things. That's more of a sci-fi channel kind of thing. But at any rate, the plan basically goes like this. Lord Dunmore is going to split his army in half. He himself will command about 1,700 men, and they will leave out of Fort Pitt, Fort Dunmore, in his opinion, today Pittsburgh, and he'll venture down the Ohio River relatively safely, uh, staying on the water until he got to Point Pleasant. He'll send the other half of his army, and half isn't a good word because it's about 800 men. Remember, Dunmore has 1,700. Uh, from what is today uh, Lewisburg, West Virginia, under the command of an American colonel 
named Andrew Lewis. Andrew Lewis uh, was not from Scotland. Andrew Lewis was not born in England. Andrew Lewis was born in America. He would be considered an American at the time, but still an agent of the British Empire. Uh, Andrew Lewis would leave Camp Union, it was called at the time today, Lewisburg, West Virginia, and he would march treacherously through the mountains over land in order to meet Dunmore where the Kanawha or Kanawha rivers and the Ohio rivers come together. So if you can imagine Dunmore's march, think of it as a pincher movement. Dunmore sweeping in with 1,700 men from the north, uh, and Andrew Lewis uh, trekking across the mountains, the heart of the mountains of West Virginia, uh, moving east to west. Well, they're supposed to meet, so timing is essential. But unfortunately for Lewis, it doesn't happen. Dunmore does get to Pittsburgh, but he delays. And he probably delays because he's enjoying the benefits of a city uh, as he knows it. Now, as they're marching, uh, what you'll see is Andrew Lewis and his men sort of hang around a bit, in and around the area of what is today Point Pleasant. And what they don't realize is that even though they are part of a much larger army, there's also a massive Indian force waiting for them as well. And they're waiting in ambush. These forces will be led by the Shawnee side, uh, by a man named Cornstalk. They'll be led uh, on the Mingo side, who are also participating to a degree by Logan. Now, Logan doesn't directly participate in the battle, but he is calling a lot of the shots. This show really belongs to the Shawnee Cornstalk. But as Andrew Lewis, the American, and his 800 men, all Virginians, all Virginians, these are not regular British troops. They're not. Uh, these are British colonists, these are Americans, are hanging around waiting for Dunmore. Of course, he's not there yet. The Indians attack. What we call this is the Battle of Point Pleasant. And it was uh, amazing. Amazing. For any number of reasons. Uh, there was about 500, most would say, at the max, Indian warriors involved in this battle. And they had Andrew Lewis's about 800 men pressed against the river. And they rushed them, they ambushed them, the assault was on. The battle lasted all day. We call it the Battle of Point Pleasant. But it was an amazing event, I think, in the history of British North America. And a hugely important event in the history of the Native world. Because you have an American army, operating on behalf of a British colony, of course, against a unified Indian force. And the fighting was brutal. And the fighting was terrible. It lasted the entire day. It was a terrible bloodletting, you could say. Andrew Lewis has his own brother killed in the battle. One of the men who died there on the Indian side, the Shawnee side, uh, is the father of the man who will be Tecumseh in the future uh, and lead that great revolution in the War of 1812 and 1811 on the frontier. Uh, but these are major events. And the fighting is brutal, and the fighting is terrible. At the end of the day, Andrew Lewis's men win out. It's difficult to say if it's actually a victory, uh, but Cornstalk and the Shawnee do abandon the battlefield, and they do flee. Now, that's all part of the Indian War strategy. Uh, the ambush itself was supposed to do a tremendous amount of damage, but Lewis's men didn't really take the bait. Uh, if you think about previous Indian battles we talked about, it was a pretty standard procedure that the British would always hold formation while the Indians would take to the trees and they would simply annihilate the very rigid, inflexible European force in the middle of the forest that way. 
Well, in this particular battle, the forest was there, and it was thick. The Indians stuck to their strategy as always, but Andrew Lewis and the Americans didn't necessarily play ball the way Cornstalk and his warriors thought. They were frontiersmen as well. They weren't going to stand in formation. They weren't redcoats. They took to the trees too. So the fighting was horrible. We like to talk about gunfire in a battle like this. And gunfire does happen. But when you're in the forest like that, and in such close quarters, again, pressed up against the river, a lot of the fighting was terrible hand-to-hand -hand combat. War clubs, tomahawks, bayonets, you name it. That day, I think more than any other, uh, you see the testament to the flexibility of the frontiersmen. Remember, we always think of it as a British world and an Indian world, very different worlds. But where do they come together? The frontier. A unique way of life is formed there, a mixture of Indian worlds and, and, and British worlds that's uniquely American in that way. Andrew Lewis's victory at Point Pleasant was a direct result. Uh, but it was the major event of Lord Dunmore's War. And if you go to Point Pleasant today, uh, you can go to the place, effectively, where the battle happened. They have a very beautiful monument. Uh, they have a nice mural they've painted. But more often than not, what you're really going to see is a lot of Mothman stuff. So that's fine as well. Uh, but understand the significance of this event. The long and short of it is this. After the heat of the battle, who arrives but Dunmore? Dunmore and, and Lewis will meet uh, in what is today the state of Ohio at a place they establish and they call Camp Charlotte. Now, they call it Camp Charlotte uh, because of the Queen and her honor. But when they meet, they sit and they basically say to the different warrior peoples involved, the Shawnee specifically, we've taken your best and we've beaten you. Now, of course, Dunmore had nothing to do with it. It was all the Americans under Andrew Lewis. But they sit down at Camp Charlotte and they sign a peace agreement. And this is very compelling, called the Treaty of Camp Charlotte. The Treaty of Camp Charlotte basically says this. It says that the Ohio Indians will cede the land to Dunmore and Virginia, which again is Dunmore's ultimate goal. It's worth big bucks. That's what he came for. But there's also another compelling little caveat to it. And that caveat says this. If there should be a war between the American separatists, the American rebels, and the British Empire, the Ohio Indians will remain neutral. That's what they say. It's not, we will side with the British. They're saying, don't side with the Americans either. They're saying, remain neutral. Now, that's a really important point. And it's why we're talking about it in this season of wartime. And almost nobody who visits that site really understands the significance of it. So let me put it to you this way. So far, Lord Dunmore's war has been a strange land and power grab by some renegade imperialist governor against a marginalized Shawnee people. And that's been it. What does it have to do with the American Revolution? Well, it has a lot to do with the American Revolution. By 1774, we've already seen the Stamp Act riots. We've already seen the Boston Massacre. We've already seen the Boston Tea Party. All too often, we jump from that event to Lexington and Concord, and we completely skip this one here. And I think it fits so neatly in 1774, right in the middle. What Dunmore's doing is, is operating on the intelligence, and he's well aware that the American colonies are spinning toward rebellion. Not all of them, but some of them. And he understands that with a strong Iroquois ally, as the British have, 
the Empire probably has enough firepower to defeat the American rebels. The American rebels have no Indian ally. Now, when he looks at the Ohioans, he sees that they've already sided with the French in 1763, right? The uh, Seven Years' War leading into Pontiac's Rebellion. And he views them really as the Americans' only option of alliance. At Camp Charlotte, he asks them, if there is a war in the future, do not take sides, remain neutral. And believe it or not, the Ohioan Indians, the Delaware, the Shawnee, the Mingo, will stick to that. They'll hold to it. Now, as we talk about the American Revolution further, you're going to see early on, uh, it's tough goings for the Americans. Most people would have thought there was no chance this rebellion will ever succeed. And I would argue that if the Ohio Indians had been fighting the Americans at the same time the British were fighting them, a two-front war, the American Revolution would have had no chance. Because odds are the American Revolution you know about is the one that happens in the East. But very few people have a very good understanding of the American Revolution on the frontier. And there's a very strong one there as well. If they actually had an Indian warrior uh, to fight against in 1775 and 76 and 1777 and 78, the revolution would have virtually no chance. But because of the Treaty of Camp Charlotte, in this strange, obscure Lord Dunmore's War, the two-front war never developed at least not until 1778 and 79, and the Americans had a real fighting chance on the frontier. Really interesting idea. If you go to Point Pleasant today, uh, you'll see a pretty, a pretty neat place. Um, a small park sits where the two rivers come together, where the battle occurred. There's a large obelisk uh, in honor of the event. It has a carving of Andrew Lewis. But the Indians, uh, they kind of get left out. Cornstalk has a small marker there, but as usual in American history, we kind of remember it the way we want to, rather than the way that we should. So that's what you see. Unfortunately for the Native peoples, they're left out there. But there is a nice new mural. It does show what the battle would have looked like very well. Quite frankly, if you're in Point Pleasant, you're going to be overwhelmed with Mothman t-shirts and everything else. And that's fine too, I suppose. You can enjoy them both. But one of the things that really, really bothers me when you go there uh, is that... All of the signage, which, by the way, was put up in, like, the 1950s, says that this was the first battle of the American Revolution. They all say it. This was the first battle of the American Revolution, which, you know, newsflash, it wasn't. It was 1774 in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the mountains on the frontier. It wasn't the first battle of the American Revolution, but... But uh, Camp Charlotte, the Treaty of Camp Charlotte, keeping the Ohio Indians neutral... That had a lot to do with the outcome of the revolution. I wish they would spin it that way. So you must ask yourself, why don't they? Well, it goes back to the 1950s. In the 1950s and 1960s, as a society, we actually spent money on history. I mean, most of the parks we have, most of the markers we have, come from like either the 1930s or the 1960s, because we were spending money on it. And there really needed to be a marketable aspect for the Battle of Point Pleasant. The decision that a few people made on their own was that they would mark it as the first battle of the American Revolution. Now, people may still say that, but it's not their fault. Um, they've just been told that their whole lives. It's a very significant event. It's a major event, but it's not important for that reason. The Treaty of Camp Charlotte, just a little bit away in Ohio, absolutely is. On the next episode, we'll talk about Lexington and Concord. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.